Now, I want you to think about that for a second in a, in, a, in a contemplative way. I want you to think about God desiring something. And then I want you to recognize that when God desires something, it is completely different than when we desire something. Number one, all that God desires is good, righteous, holy, perfect, and pleasing to himself. All that we desire is not. Even if we're confused, and even if we think that what we desire is good and pleasing and everything, sometimes there are motives that we don't even understand. We also need to understand that God is not longing for anything. He is satisfied and self-sufficient. He is the self-existent one. He is the eternal one. No one has to give God anything for Him to be complete. He is forever and eternally always joyful within Himself and loves Himself with all the fullness of all things at all times, thus not needing anything outside of Himself whatsoever. So when He created the world, it was that He would show and reveal Himself in His self-sufficiency to a people that He would create for His purpose, and He did so by the command of His Word. And He still does it today. He commands through His Word, the gospel of free and sovereign grace. He commands the truth of Christ. He commands the story of the good report of the God-man who came to earth, who created a womb in which He was born, from which He was born, and lived in the world among His people and among His enemies, all of which are His creation, that He may do with them as He pleases, so that His Word would be fulfilled, eternally decreed, to save a people for Himself in Christ Jesus, the Messiah the Holy and the Anointed One of God. Now these are things that take a lifetime of contemplation to really start to see and to cherish. And even we who have studied for years and years and years the Scripture, even being reminded of these things put us in a place of awe in which we are unable to shake ourselves from. We, the world around us becomes less important. As a matter of fact, the ins and outs of the mundane almost become idolatrous in the light of the glory of all that God has revealed through His Word. But our culture has done something different to answer that void, to think, well, my life is a waste, so let me do something. So the culture has taught us to be active in certain aspects of certain ways of ministry as unto the Lord. And, beloved, the Bible doesn't prescribe these things. The world would say we're looking for warriors for Jesus. The Scripture says we're looking for People to lay down their lives. The world would say, speak up, be bold. The scripture would say, shut up and take it. Probably shouldn't have said shut up, should I? Oh, scripture says, be quiet and take it. Yeah, that's a bad word for my kids when they were little too, sorry. <laughs> the world would say, you better straighten these people out. And the Bible says, until the log is completely gone from your eye, leave the speck alone. There is a huge problem in our world today, even amongst true believers. Now, we know that the evangelical cults of the world produce false converts because they have a false gospel. They have a man-centered response to an offer that God has given, and that's nonsense. It's demonic. It is not the teaching of Scripture. The Bible teaches that God has saved a people that finished the finished work of Christ is salvation, and that faith granted by the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is the only way that a person can rest in the sufficiency of Christ's work. And then... We come to the place of seeing the Scripture taught to the church. And we've, we've, we've come to a day where 
because of history, I think people have just decided to create their own ministries, their own gospels, their own iterations of Jesus's. And I'm not even talking about the error. I'm talking about the true Christ doctrinally as taught from the Bible, but then to apply him to the life of the believer in a wrong way. I think people have come to create what pastors should be. And it's not to be professionals. People have decided what the church should look like, but yet it's not found in the pages of Scripture. People have decided they have the wisdom to do what they think God wants them to do because they know that they're right. And beloved, the very nature of those expressions in our own heart, even when we cover it and drown that expression with the greatest of humility, is wicked before God. Think about the first century church. Think about what they knew and what they had and what it cost them. See, prosperity in our world today, like brother said before church, there are people that across the world that live in hovels. But yeah, we wouldn't have stains on the carpet. Now I've got to replace that rug. Got to replace that chair. There's a tear in it. I mean, we're, we're bougie folks. That's the new phrase, you know. We're posh. And we're spoiled. And I think that's bled into, our, bled into our culture. And even those who aren't posh and spoiled and bougie, they humble brag in their poverty. They humble, humbly express, oh, I just have nothing. I've given it up for Christ. Folks, people who say I've given it up for Christ have not given it up for Christ. People who say I'm the leader of the church or I know the truth have not, don't know the truth and they're not leading anybody. They're commanding a platform. They're demanding recognition. And it's ego. It's egotistical. And I don't want to bog down on that because it's not, it doesn't matter, but I want you to see it, beloved, that the sin of the flesh of our humanity is deceiving. We don't see it. Since I was six years old, I've done illusions, magic arts. Magic tricks, party favors. It's all deception. That's the point of it. It's deception. It's like, watch this, and I'm doing something way down here. It's making you look somewhere else. And then you convert that into sales, and you can sell cars and air conditionings and anything else you want. It's about deception. People don't know until they know. Well, beloved, when we're engaged in these types of ideologies, when our minds are focused in certain ways that we are stomping our proverbial humble feet in the face of God as if we are His new corrective sword, we are absolutely deceived. Those who believe that they are making changes for the better in God's kingdom by not following the Scripture are liars and are of Satan, period, all the time. Now, have you ever been of Satan? I have. Satan uses 
believers. Why? Because our flesh is tempted. He dangles it out there. He provides opportunity for us to consider our own way. And then we don't believe the commands of God. We don't believe the promises of Scripture. And we walk into our own wisdom. And I'm going to show us what that looks like today and what it causes. And this is not new. We all know it. But we're deceived to our own trials in it. And what happens when ego causes trials which eradicates peace then we become victims. Then it's someone else's fault. If that person had said this to me in a different way, I wouldn't have become angry. No, you're angry because you're a sinner. And thank God that you're not going to be judged for eternal life by on how well your anger was managed. Because whether you ever express it or not, if it's in your heart, you're still guilty. And if you've ever expressed it, that guilt will remain unless someone else pays for it. Jesus the Christ, the Holy Anointed One of God. And then a positive righteousness will never be yours if it doesn't come from another, from Jesus. So we understand the good report of Christ. We wait for the day of glorification. We wait for the day of God speaking to us and then our whole countenance, our whole person, our whole essence will be recreated in the image of Christ, sinless and immutable. Not divine, It's a big difference, but perfect. Having been awarded that, bequeathed that as adopted children, not because of who we are and what we've done and how well we've done, even by the power of God, but because Christ alone was given, we were given to Him and He died in our place and His righteousness was credited to our account. This is the only gospel. There is no other. And so when we make judgments and when we are allow ourselves to get bogged down into these thoughts and thinking, we are not submitting to God's Word. And beloved, the new mind can hear and know and submit to God's Word. Perfectly? Absolutely not. Even when we are perfectly following it in some season, there is still a hint of sinfulness in the context of our following. So we're not measured by that. And we see here, Paul, let's read the first two questions again. Uh, first two, uh, not questions, first two sentences of this letter again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by, and I'm going to emphasize this today, by command of God our Savior and of the anointed Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's what I want to emphasize. And there's still two or three more things that need to be pulled out of that so that we grasp the reason, the occasion, the power, and the authority of the letter that he's written, not just this one, but the second letter that he wrote to Timothy. Beloved, these are important teachings. And they're highly practical. Let me say that again. They're important teachings and they're highly practical. We sometimes hear the accusation of antinomianism. <laughs> it's absurd. It's absurd, but yet people who refuse the instruction of Scripture are indeed antinomian. What does that mean? They don't think they have to obey anything. They're not going to be held accountable to any instruction. They're not going to be disciplined or corrected under any circumstance. And I think it's a majority of professing believers. 
I think people get upset. and instead, It's funny how they can counsel others to be patient, to be kind, and to submit to the Scripture. But then when things don't go their way, they just leave like little babies. And I don't mean to mock, but I am done playing games with God and with His people. The church will be pure by the sovereignty of God. And we will be a people for His glory by His grace. No boasting. No boasting. But see, sometimes we fear the Scripture, don't we? I like how knuckleheaded, nonsense people. I've never feared the Scripture. You are a liar. You are a liar. We'll look at how liars we are sometimes. But Paul is an apostle, not by the call, also by the call, but how was that call? I mean, did God offer Paul an apostleship? That he meet him on the road to Damascus and says, hey, come up here and water your horse and uh, let's have a discussion. You know, I've been looking for a guy like you. You've got all the right things. Your resume's good. I mean, you, you don't have any bad stuff in your closet. Nobody's going to cancel you. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of stuff going for you, Paul, and I could use a man. Are you in the business of changing careers? You want to leave Judaism and come into the new creation, the new covenant, the new kingdom? You want to understand what I'm working toward? I need a right-hand man. No, God didn't need a right-hand man. He needed a man he could crush and destroy and put into slavery to be despised by the world and even those who loved him and who supposedly worshiped the same God as he so that he could bring to his elect Gentile people the gospel. And that's Paul's life. God commanded Paul to go and Paul went. He had no choice. God commanded Paul to see and his eyes were opened and he could not unsee. And the irony behind that and the perfection as we've gone through John's gospel, we see that what physical blindness is as it relates to spiritual blindness. God did the opposite for Paul. Paul could see with his eyes, but he couldn't see in the spirit. And so God blinded his eyes as a message, as a miracle, as a testimony. But he opened his true eyes to see Christ for who he was. Paul, to be an apostle by the command of God, and if you notice here, apostle of Christ, the holy anointed one of of God named Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So we see a Trinitarian formula here. We see that Jesus Christ is Savior. God is Savior. Jesus Christ is God. This is assumed. See, some people get messed up with the terminology of the Trinity. People get messed up with theological terms. Beloved, we just have to get to the root of what people are trying to say, and then we affirm or deny that what they're saying is biblical, and then we walk patiently with them according to the commands of God to work these things out with simplicity and unity. And there is no recourse when correction is given. No recourse at all. None. Anyone who would say otherwise is wrong according to the commands of Christ. So we need to emphasize here that Paul, as I've already said in the very first sermon, this is sermon four of this letter, the very first sermon that Paul is speaking as Christ's ambassador, as the one sent from God, his ambassador. Christ sent from the Father, now he is sent from Christ. So when Paul writes this, let us go on record to say we are reading the letter to Timothy from Jesus written by Paul. Because what Paul instructs in his letters 
He holds with such power and authority to say, I am telling you, God is commanding of you to hear these things. And beloved, when God commands to His people, those who have ears to hear, they hear. That is why biblical correction, loving discipline, and patient teaching always is to be measured by people's response to the simple and gentle instruction of the Word of God. And those who do not respond to follow the Word of God, but usurp it and do their own way and justify their sin and their actions by their own fear, which is never of God, uh, their own passion, which is not something God gives, zeal, which is worthless without truth, assumption, which is murder and gossip, These things are wrong. Why are we saying all this? Because we know what this world is. And the world and a bunch of people who claim to be in the gospel, who claim to be purchased by the blood of Christ, are living as if they are pagan idolaters because they don't listen to the Scripture. What cult that's a Christian cult, there's air quotes there for those of you who might listen to this later. I'm not saying they're Christians. Good gosh, listen to what the context is. What Christian cult that uses the scripture that we use doesn't take pieces and parts of it and abuse it, twist it, and make it to say what they want it to say to fit their already predetermined ideological bend toward what they're trying to prove. You can do anything, but you know what happens when you read context? All that goes out the window. You know what happens when you have to obey what's commanded of us in the New Testament despite what you think and feel? All that goes out the window because the promises of God are powerful. Brother Trey read this morning out of Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the good report of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul was an apostle by the command of God. He had no choice. God's vessel to take the Gentiles the gospel. And he was directly appointed and empowered and affirmed and authorized by Jesus alone. I mean, you can go to all the other letters, Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, and you can see where Paul says that he is appointed and sent by Jesus himself. Now, some people claim that today. Well, I've been sent by Jesus. I haven't been sent by Jesus. I've been called by God. I've been called by the Father. I've been called into the work of the ministry. And Lord, He knows that I have tried to quit for 20-something years. I've tried to get away. I've tried to stop, but I cannot do it. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. You cannot quit the church, and you cannot quit the Scripture if you were born of God. You may have a season. You may have a Jonah moment. Jonah was scared of the Word of God. He ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. Why? Because he wanted his outcome, not God's outcome. He did not want to go preach the good report to the Ninevites. He wanted to preach justice. And God said, I don't care what you want to preach. My commandment is, go preach the good report. Preach grace to the Ninevites. You don't know these people. I'm not, I don't want to see them. You know, for, for some of the people in the world who hope to God certain people aren't in heaven, they don't have to worry about it. They won't be there to see them. Now, I know that's a broad assumption and it's a really silly thing because all of us are going, oh no, I feel that way. Listen, it is not how we feel that determines our eternal life. But I just want you to think about that for a second. If we really hope someone is condemned, then 
There's something wrong with our understanding of grace. And most importantly, we're going to give God credit for we being who we are, but we're pretty close to Lucifer in that context. And none of us are as beautiful as he is. None of us are as beautiful as Lucifer. The fallen angel, the devil, Satan, El Satan, Diablo, whatever it might be, whatever language you want to speak, the enemy, the hater of God's glory. Paul, by the command of Christ, was sent by Christ. And so Paul, by the command of Christ, was sent to write these letters to Timothy. The first century church didn't walk around with a Bible. Also think about it for a second. The first century church, the members of the church did not walk around with letters. They did not walk around with the Old Testament. They did not walk around with all of these books. Number one, all the New Testament wasn't finished. Number two, you couldn't afford that. And then most people couldn't even read it. So that shows that when we see the New Testament written, it's written to the church and it's written as letters. Even the gospel accounts are letters. Written so that the elders and the overseers, same thing, elders and overseers of the churches of the congregations, of the assemblies, of the families, would get together and they would read aloud these things and then they would instruct them in it. That's what we do today. But the problem is, is that we have access to not just the Scripture, which very few people actually read. Now let's just be honest. Very few people actually read the Bible. You don't, we don't read it. We look at it, we carry it around, we move it from table to chair, from car to church, but most of us don't actually read it. We just utilize it as a tool. And then some people who say, well, I'm a student of Scripture, they're not reading it either. The Bible is their index where they put their thumbs while they parse all the other knowledge concerning theological things that are in the world. Well, I got, and brothers and sisters... I got thousands of books and I've gotten rid of thousands of books and I got more thousands of books that I've shoved in other places. These boxes back here. I mean, you know, I'm at the point where I don't want to have a book burning, but if I get cold, what's more important? The Scripture. I promise you, all the years of counsel and discussion and, and talking, I can tell who reads the Scripture and who doesn't read the Scripture. I can tell because the power of God through His Word instructs us and most importantly the Spirit of God tempers us in the context of grace, in the context of the Gospel when we are actively disciplined to be in the Bible. And so most of the problems that we have in our lives, especially in our relationships, are because we are not obedient to what the Scripture teaches us to do. Paul is an apostle by the command of God to write this letter to Timothy, sent by Christ, directly appointed. He also says in 1 Corinthians that he's an eyewitness to these things. He's an eyewitness to the accounts. The Scripture teaches us, as, he, as we heard this morning in Romans 1, that he is the bearer of God's revelation. He writes that which God has revealed. And beloved, he is a co-leader in the churches of Christ. He has authority by God alone to command the church to do certain things. I'm going to say that again. Paul and the other apostles have authority by God alone to command the church to do certain things. Then Paul says, 
in several places, especially to the church of Corinth, anyone who does not do what I say in relation to how to dealing with relationship issues, peace, love, patience, calmness, quietness, simplicity, and obedience, he says, do not consider them a brother. Well, what does that mean? That they're lost? No. doesn't mean they're unconverted. He's just saying you don't have time to play with people who don't play by the rules. Put them aside. Put them in time out until they get with the program. But what do we think? I know how to fix this. If I could just... Folks, I'm telling you. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. People love to hear gospel preaching, but they don't want to be shepherded in God's Word. We don't want to be told that what we are and what we are doing and how we're thinking is unbiblical. We don't want to be told. We're scared to death for somebody to tell us what to do. But yet, even if Jesus himself would just stay here, stand here and tell some of us what to do, we probably would ignore it by Tuesday morning. Because the Apostle Paul is writing Scripture and he's telling us what to do this morning. And some of us might ignore it before lunch. The command of God. These, Paul, Paul, these apostles, Paul was responsible for taking the gospel and for teaching the churches. And then he charges Timothy, an elder. So therefore he charges me and Dave Barnes and Jesse Bates, who are the elders of this flock, to do the same. Not as apostles, but to submit to Him, thus submitting to the Lord. And when we don't do that, time out. <laughs> time out. And Paul talks about how we consider a man to be worthy of time out versus worthy to stand in the pulpit. It's because of who I am and the life that I live and all the kind of stuff. Well, it's part of it. But majority of it is that I'm qualified in Christ. And we strive, as we'll see, to do that which God has commanded us, not what my education has taught me. And for those of you who know me and care to ever ask, you'll know that if I could, I'd give it all back. I'd take all that money back. The command of God. Spoken and established. By which we have grace... Intimate, loving, kind mercy which establishes peace. From God who commands the apostles to be the apostles. From God who commands the apostles to write letters. From God who commands the world and everything in it to be as it is. For God who commands and He gives grace to His people. For God who commands that we are at peace. This letter is written to the true child of Paul in the faith. True child. I can't wait to talk about that in a couple of weeks. True child. See, sometimes we want to say, well, I know what that means. And then we have this whole list of laws that we've established. A true child looks like this. When simply taught, the Scripture says a true child is one who has been given to Christ. A true child has been adopted by God. A true child has been loved forever. A true child has his sins paid for. A true child is at peace. 
with God. And the list goes on and on. And because we are true children, therefore walk in a manner, therefore put away malice, therefore do not slander, therefore do not steal, therefore be patient, therefore do not forsake the assembly, therefore don't be haughty and selfish, therefore don't be greedy. You see? The command of God is spoken. Therefore, the command of God is established. How do you have faith? Because God commanded it. How has the grace of God been given to you? Because God commanded it. How did He command that? By what means? Through the Word. By what foundation is He able to do such things? By the blood of Christ. By the death of Christ. By the one who has given His life for a, as a ransom for His people. What must I do? Hear the word of the Lord. How can I do that? Paul tells the Romans, by the power of God, through the words of Christ, He will give those He deems, as He sees, Ephesians 1, by the counsel of His own will, ears to hear it. Because there is not a human being in the world that has ever lived who could not follow a prescription. There's not a human being in the world without a little bit of training who can't follow a map. There's not a human being in the world, and I know this is hyperbole, folks. I don't need your insistence on precision in those contexts, but because I could see some of your faces. Well, you know, that's all right. Let me have my time. There's not a human being in the world that can't be taught to behave in a certain manner. There's not a human being in the world that can't be taught linguistically how to operate with his mouth. How to work with his hands. There's very little talent in the world. There's a lot of learning. It's not talent that we play instruments. It's practice. Years and years of hours of professors and practice. And you know how it is. You may have a natural inclination toward this. Then that means what is an inclination? An interest. Or an agility. It doesn't make you good at it. But beloved, we have professional Christians in our world. We have professional theologians. We have professional sovereign grace believers. We have people who have fit the mold, but they are so far from Christ because they don't listen to Scripture. They don't hear the commands of God. And when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, He includes the writing of the apostles. His voice, no matter the subject matter, is His voice. We don't get to pick and choose how we decipher what we hear and what we listen to. Those who the Spirit of God is teaching. Now, do we always submit to it? No, but we know we're disobeying. Those who don't know they're disobeying are deceived. The Spirit of God, why? The Spirit of God works and teaches according to the commands of God. According to the Scripture. According to the New Testament letters written to the New Testament church. The New Testament wasn't written to a group of lost people. It's not evangelistic. We're evangelistic. Can you get the gospel out of the gospels? Yeah, there it is. The story of Christ and what He's accomplished. And those were written so that they might have a good report to show. But hey, what's all this about this Jesus stuff? Just read this. That's why I tell people to read the gospel of John. Read it. It is your evangelism tool. Don't go to Romans. Romans is a 
discipleship tool for people who have grown up in a pagan mindset, people who have grown up in a worldly culture, people who think, well, how can I be saved? How can I be Christ? How can I belong to God when I've ignored all these teachings for so long? I need to catch up. Paul's like, you don't need to catch up. God called you. You're just as much a child of God, you Roman pagan, you dirty old idolater, as the idolatrous Pharisee, me. You see, that's Paul's comparison. That's why God ordained Paul to be a Pharisee for the first part of his life. So that he would have the testimony of grace rather than works. So the command of God is spoken and established. The command of God is taught to us by the Spirit of God. And then what do we do as human beings? We rebel against it. That's the whole point. I mean, we've been through Hebrews. We've been through a lot of letters. We went through Genesis. But, you know, as we go through Genesis some more over, the, over next year, we're going to see God promised, people heard it, and then they just ignored it. They rebelled against it. How do they rebel against it? They didn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. Some of us would haughtily say, well, man, if I saw God do what He did in Egypt, man, I'd never doubt. Yes, we would. We'd doubt as soon as we tasted manna and realized that spicy bread in Egypt was a lot better to our mouths, to our flesh. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children with a sack lunch. And then they gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers so that none would be wasted, none would be lost, symbolically. And yet, these people followed, Jesus vanished from among them, and they followed the disciples down to the boats, and God caused a storm to bring the boat from Capernaum over to the shore so that they could get in the boats and they could come over to Capernaum and see Jesus. And the first question is, how'd you get here? When'd you get here? And Jesus says, you're not coming after me. You want me to do another magic trick? You want me to do another miracle? You want me to do another feeding? You, you, this isn't the J.C. Buffet. Don't labor for the bread that perishes. Labor for the bread that endures your eternal life. F fine then, we'll do that. Where is it? Right here, he says. I'm that bread. Well, if you're the bread, then show us the manna. If you're the bread, then where's the Ark of the Covenant? I want to see it. Prove it. He could have pulled that ark out of his ear and they still wouldn't have believed. Why? Because only when the Spirit of God teaches does it overcome rebellion. And beloved, this is my sin. This is my sin. That I think I can convince somebody else to listen and to adhere to the Word of God. I never literally say that to myself. But the way I operate and the way I worry and the way I labor and the way I do... I think that there is some way that God might use me to call somebody else to actually see and to obey. And I'm talking about believers in the context of loving discipleship. I'm not talking about unbelievers now. But I used to feel that way too. That's rebellion. But then God, by His command, corrects through the Word. He corrects the church through the Word. And He corrects the church through the church, through the teaching of His Word. So the commands of God corrects us and puts us back on the right focus concerning the promises of God. See, Paul is assuming 
because he knows, because he taught him, that Timothy understands all this. Mercy, grace, and hope from our Lord, the command of God, our Father, the Savior, Christ Jesus, our hope. And Paul loves that verbiage about Christ being our hope. And in that, I mean, he's a hope is a noun there. Christ is the hope. And so he assumes, and he's resting in this, beloved, so that he would be reminded by God the Spirit, listen, that Timothy would be reminded by God the Spirit every time he read these letters and every time his scribes copied them and read them to other churches, that the churches and the elders of those churches would be reminded that what is about to be written is Christ writing to his elders of his churches and that he alone has the power to bring peace, hope, and mercy. And that's why Timothy commands, I mean, Paul commands Timothy. That's why Timothy is commanded to be peaceful, to be patient, to be gentle, to be calm. But he gets the exhortation. Look at verse 3 right here. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he says, remain in Ephesus. And I want to just go ahead and say he commanded Timothy to go to Ephesus, okay? Or to stay at Ephesus. So that you may charge... Timothy had no judicial power, but charge. You may call people to not teach different doctrines. That you may call people, you may command people. Let's just, let's just do this. Let's just do this. This is, this is a month from now. We probably won't get here for another four weeks. But let's just put it in the perspective of what's happening here with this authority. I commanded you to remain at Ephesus so that you may command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and English genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Why would he do that? The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge, beloved, love, the command of God given to His people in love is effective unto faith. And faith in the gospel includes and establishes the premise that the Word of God in its whole counsel is sufficient for our hope and our peace and our joy. It is sufficient to be the divine power of God, not only to our salvation, but to our life together as individuals and collectively as the family of faith. I hope to God Almighty that men, so-called men of God do not treat their marriage the way they treat the body of Christ. Because the marriage will end, the body will not. It's a mockery. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? This isn't the McDonald's on West Street, and the McDonald's over on Universal. Well, that McDonald's over there has cleaner bathrooms, I'm going to go and do. But this is nonsense. We don't, we don't get to decide what we listen to and what we do and say that we're submitting to the Lord. And that being said, the point is is that Paul's going to teach Timothy about not only how elders should oversee and what their authority is by the commands of God, but he's going to show Timothy what he must as elders do to teach other men who must also be elders how they are to command the church in matters of doctrine, reconciliation, sin, peace, love, and the authority of Scripture. 
Paul should have started with 2 Timothy 3 at 1 Timothy 1. For all scriptures breathed out by God. Beloved, he did. By the command of God our Savior. And Jesus Christ our hope. Everybody can find a Jesus that satisfies their inner demon. Everybody can find a Jesus that doesn't that they can sit in their closet by themselves with like-minded people who love isolation. But the Scripture calls for a Jesus that actually does miracles in the context of relationships who have no affinity outside the Gospel. The Scripture calls that God can command reconciliation in impossible circumstances. The Scripture says that God can take a marriage that is destroyed and bring it back together because that's the picture of God taking what has been destroyed by man's rebellion and putting them in Christ. They have no choice in the matter. So people who claim to be in Christ can't be part of a church family if they're not willing to submit to the Scripture. Because the Scripture is the whole point of being in the church. And that's what He's going to teach my true child in the faith. This is an undercurrent of the fact that Timothy's going to listen to the commands of God through Timothy. And when we test these things, when we put this to the test, what I'm saying, don't take my word for it. Just listen. Read Timothy. You can't get all this from these first two verses, but you can get all this by reading these two letters. And as we unpack it, just as the apostles write introductions, as we unpack it over the next year, we'll start to see these things come to light. Put it to the test, write these things down, and then check them. But don't check them by Googling things. Don't check them by going to a YouTube channel. Don't check them by calling your friend. Don't check them by going to the synod, the synod records of history. Don't check them by going to a commentary. Check them by just reading the Bible. And what is the test of the command of God? What is it that we know that the God's Scripture, that the Word of God will actually establish the parameters and the joy and the hope of life, not just in salvation but in life together because God has caused faith. God has given faith to His people. God has caused us to believe in both redemption and instruction. Because believe it or not, faith, that, quote, saves is not a list of precepts. Faith that saves is knowing God's promises are true and resting in them. Then, because they're true, the commands of Scripture then on how we live together and serve and do are also not, what does John say? They're not a burden to us. They're not a, it's not a burden. That's why we don't do small groups and children's ministry and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, if any of y'all want to do some of that kind of stuff, jump on it. But it's not going to be a church thing. The elders aren't called to create that stuff. We're not supposed to be about making you busy because we haven't gotten the first commandment down, nor have we gotten the second commandment down. We haven't gotten the New Testament under our belts enough to where we're intimate enough to actually serve one another, thus serve Christ as we should. So it's going to be a lifelong practice. A lifelong practice. And as we age and generations die out, the perpetuity of the body of Christ, known as Grace Truth Church, will continue in that same manner. And by His mercy, we will continue to see people live a loving, sacrificial, 
sometimes controversial life together as a family, but He will be glorified and praised because of His glorious grace and mercy through the writing of the Word of God that the instruction was not burdensome. It's not a burden to sit down and love somebody when the gospel is at the center of it. We find hope when we read the Bible. And if we don't find hope in the practice of the commands of Scripture, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. We've received mercy and we've obtained peace from God the Father. Look at that. We talked about grace last week and the week before. And we could talk about mercy and peace, but we know what peace is. We know that ultimately what Paul is talking about is that peace between us and God. It's like if you get upset, and I've seen this happen before. I won't say where or when because people will know what I'm talking about, some of us. But I've seen someone get upset, storm out of a building, get in their car and donut a person's yard up really bad and then drive off. Real mature. Now, it didn't happen at my house because that person's not dead. But anyway, that's a joke, but I'm being honest. <laughs> I'd be upset if you messed my grass up. I've only got this much, so... The rest of it's dirt. But you know, that, that's, that's tough. And what do you do? I mean, and then you get halfway down the road. I mean, this guy gets halfway down the road and, oh, what have I done? I've, I've acted like a fool. I've acted like a child. But he, this person said something to me and it offended me and he sinned against me. He said something about my mama and I just couldn't handle it. I was either going to punch him or tear up his grass. So I tore up his grass and I spun off. But what am I going to do? I can't go back can't go back. I can't, I can't do what's, what's right. I don't know what to do. See, see that tension there? And then the guy's like, you know what John just did? You know what John just did? You know what John, Facebook, you know what John just did? Look what John just did. And then everybody, look here, look at yonder, look at this. Oh, I knew this John was a bad guy. Not, I called his mama ugly and he tore up my grass in response. But then John comes and says, you know what he said about my mama? But guess what everybody's heard? We see the video, John. We know what you did. Let's talk about this. See, that's what the Word of God will do. It doesn't let us get off the hook. It doesn't let us take our sin and put it on a table until somebody else's sin is made known. Beloved, there's no way possible. I mean, if there's a way possible, when sin happens in the body of Christ, if it's possible, we should deal with it patiently and quietly. And promptly. And when it's dealt with and people have stopped and ceased and come to terms of submitting to the Word of God, whether everything's worked out or not, we rejoice in unity. This is what Timothy's being taught. This is what I'm being taught. And this is what I'm going to be teaching to you. Remember, we were going to start Timothy in March. <laughs> we are going to start Timothy in August. We were going to start Timothy. But the Lord just kept pressing me to go into the Old Testament for a while. How do you make peace with someone that you just tore up their yard? 
How do you make peace with God when we've done worse than tore up His yard, we tore up His name? What are you going to do? you got no money, you can't replant the sod. You can say, I'm sorry, but does that fix the problem? Does it repair it? You can go back and actually have a good relationship, but there's always a, that tore up yard every time you're standing out there and you're standing in the very damaged scar of what we did. Beloved, there is nothing we can do sometimes to create restitution. But there's always something that can be done in the way of forgiveness between each other. There's nothing we can do to make peace with God. And I've heard preachers say that. I don't know when or where, but I've heard people say that. Even if it was Russell lights on my door on Saturday mornings, they've always said, you know how to have peace with God. You know how to make peace with God. There's nothing that makes peace with God except the blood of Jesus Christ. So the blood of Jesus Christ makes peace with God. How does the blood of Christ even apply to us as the believers, as the church, as the elect? Because God granted it to us. God gave us to Christ and He substituted Himself for us. This is the good report. This is the message of redemption. So we have peace with God. Therefore, we can strive and have peace with one another if we believe the promises of God found in Scripture, if we follow the prescriptions that are going to be taught to us in these letters, if we are truly recipients of mercy in our own hearts and minds, we will have peace. But when we do not listen to the instructions and the commands of God, when we do not follow the instructions of the Scripture but we take our own ideas and we give them legs and we put fertilizer to them and we double down on them, we feel hopeless, not at peace. And you know, to feel hopeless as a believer is part of the sin nature. To feel fear as a believer is part of our sin. To, fear, to feel suspicion, paranoia, is all of the flesh. And I can argue psychologically with almost perfect accuracy that it's egotistical and arrogant. Not me. That was, it was hubris that caused Eve and Adam to eat the fruit. It was hubris that caused Satan to say in his heart, I look so good, I should stand up there with God. And a majority of the angels in heaven agreeing in their hearts. And look at Lucifer. Why doesn't he stand up there with God? Look at him. Gosh, he's so beautiful. He's almost as beautiful as God. Hubris, that's arrogance. We can't see it. Why? Because it's deception. Bitterness, a root of deception. It's deception. And if God were to expose all the wickedness of our essence, at one time our heads would pop. That's why inflection and constant thinking about one's own standing in his own efforts before God. Beloved, when we're born again, we are granted peace to know that because of the blood of Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied and the justice of God is done. There is no court for the believer. There is no trial for the elect. It's been done on the cross of Christ. 
When we do not listen and follow the commands of Christ and the Scripture, we feel hopeless. And when we do that, we lose the blessings of life. Not eternal life. We're talking in a practical sense here. Timothy's talking, being taught in a practical sense. As the Romans were taught in the relationship portions from chapter 12 to the end in a practical sense. Like Hebrews when Paul taught the Jews, the Christian Jews, in the practical sense. There's a practical application of life together. Otherwise, we could just all stay home and watch me by myself teach through an internet screen. That's not intimacy. That's not growth. That's not maturity. And that sure as heck isn't worship or ministry. But for some people, it's all they can do. So we need to take the extra effort for some of those as we're able to minister. But we lose the blessings of life. We lose the joy and the peace and the understanding. That sur- and and, and the, like, like Paul would say, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What's the context of that statement? In the midst of great personal, practical, pragmatic trials, suffering, hatred, bitterness, all these sinful things, all these feelings and all these emotions. Beloved, we are never, ever, ever to use our emotions to guide our understanding of the truth or to live according to the truth. We don't listen, we live in fear. I mean, Jonah didn't listen. He heard he was going to Nineveh, and Jonah, being a righteous prophet by the grace of God, said, Oh, I've been looking for this. I've been waiting. Can't wait to get on Facebook and smear those Ninevites. Can't wait to go out there and yell to the rooftops. Y'all come watch this fire. So he goes to Nineveh. After what? Being scared to go to Nineveh. Being scared to go to Nineveh. Being scared to go to Nineveh. And God swallows him up, spits him out on the shores of Nineveh. He's like, well, while I'm here, I might as well take my stank butt up there and at least I'll get to see him burn. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? He hated them. And then when God didn't burn him, he was angry. Maybe I should preach Jonah. My, my OCD doesn't like that book. It's just... <gasps> Because I ponder so much for weeks and weeks and weeks after I read it. Just ponder. What if? What if? What if? And then I don't do anything. I'm not productive. But we live in fear. We don't listen to the Scripture. We harbor bitterness. We harbor unforgiveness. Which is our natural bend. We become apathetic, which is hate which is not love. We neglect true worship, which is service to others. See, all of us think this is worship. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I say to rich like me, me, me. Mm -mm. True worship is loving you. True worship is to serve each other. And I said, well, how can I serve? Beloved, if you can pray for us, if we can pray for one another by name, that's great. Because there's no amount of ministry apart from prayer that will ever do anything. But no ministry at all with only prayer can do everything. When we don't listen to the Scripture, we don't obey the Scripture, we literally reject the grace of God through the assembly. It's not salvific. I don't use that phrase. Well, that's the phrase. That's what Paul says. Grace of God be 
to you in my writing, the grace of God be with you in my departing of this letter. The grace of God. The God's grace is effectually, what does that mean? His mercy, kindness, and love toward His people to grow us, to mature us, to keep us at peace, to give us joy, and to help us worship and to serve one another for His name's sake is part of what He promised only in the body as it assembles together. You can't obtain it in any other way. When we ignore it, we seek our own way. We know what's right in our own eyes, and we seek it, but we're deceived to it. And then when we see somebody else joyful in our circumstances because they are submitting to the Scripture and God has granted them joy, we begrudge it. There's nothing more demonic than seeing someone else's joy and wishing they weren't joyful. You ever thought about that? How can they be joyful when we're going through this? Because Christ has promised it to us. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice, but it doesn't have anything to do with our joy that's found in Christ. Beloved, we can be glad in the midst of great suffering. And when we begrudge others' joy, we then create our own narrative. We begin to teach as Paul will teach. We begin to start talking about how things happened or how things happened to us or how we treated other people or what really did, you know, they, they treated Paul like dirt. Why? Because he held to the standard of Christ's commands. And that's what elders will do. Otherwise, they're no longer overseers. They're disqualified and they must stop serving the church. People create their own narrative. Then they lose sight of their purpose. Then they become more important in their own eyes. You see? You hear the teachings of Paul? And we shouldn't do that. We should never be more important in our own eyes. What does that look like? I'm not going to do this because I feel this way. And this is... What does the Bible say? The Scripture tells us to do X. Then we do X. And we're not considering, we don't consider what we think, feel, or supposedly know. We consider one another. We are to do what we're called to do because of others, not ourselves. And when we do that, we literally are justifying our sin. We ignore God's rebukes according to Scripture. We ignore God's instruction. We ignore God's training in righteousness. Now, where's that at? Second Timothy? A man of God will be profitable and successful in all his ways, preach the word of God in season and out of season. He didn't tell Timothy to become a psychologist. He didn't tell Timothy to become a therapist. He didn't tell Timothy to, to learn how to be relative to certain different, uh, to different situations and circumstances in the context of relationships. He didn't tell Timothy to use what his grandmother Eunice had taught him about you know, dealing with difficult people. He wasn't told to preach a sermon on reconciling differences in a post-millennial world. You can laugh at that, even if you don't know what I mean. It's nonsense. It's a new book on Audible this week. I mean, you know, it's changed my life. No, it hasn't. We ignore it. And when we do that, we're not believing God. Let's get to the root of it. We're not believing God when we refuse to hear the instruction on practical matters. Don't you question my faith. No, God questions your faith. Oh, there he is. He's a PS guy. 
He's a Lordshipper. No, I'm not. You bring that charge all you want. Matter of fact, don't even bring it. If you're not a part of our assembly in this place, I don't want to hear from you. Because you got no warrant. You got no biblical voice. What's the old shut your pie hole? That's not becoming of a pastor. Good. That's your version. Paul says, be quiet. That's his version. Paul speaks by the authority of Christ. Oh, so you're telling Jesus to shut up. I'm telling you, serious, y'all. And some of you are in circumstances like this in your home. Some of you are in circumstances like this at your job. Some of you are in circumstances like this in the very congregation. Some of you are in circumstances like this in, in all sorts of different relationships because of the faith, etc. But beloved, if you're not at peace, you need to sit still. If you're not content with the way things are and willing to wait on the Lord, you need to sit still and listen to the Scripture and love one another. Love your worst enemy and watch the Lord do a change in your heart. And when you figure it out, come tell me and then I'll try it. What can I do? I can pray for them. That's about as far as I can go for some people. And as I pray then I learn to weep. And as I weep, then I feel guilty. I'm not doing enough for people who hate me. Isn't that crazy? And then I mess up my obligations. Well, now I've got to go do all this. And then I usurp my responsibilities. <laughs> and I have to be corrected there. The Christian life is about constant correction and guidance in a state of peace in the economy of grace. And when we don't listen to the Scripture, we don't believe God. So if we don't believe God in the simple things like reconciling differences, dealing with false teachers, which is the first occasion that Paul deals with, dealing with doctrinal errors, dealing with things like that, if we can't trust the Scripture for that, we're not trusting the Scripture to tell us that Christ is our propitiation and our righteousness. I don't give a flip what you say you believe. You don't believe it. You know the truth, the facts. But it's not your truth. And beloved, we're going to live as a people that believes in the Lord. Believes in His promises. Paul understood this. He knew his task and circumstances. I mean, read 2 Corinthians. <laughs> read chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Read the Acts of the Apostles and see what Paul went through. Paul, of all people, had reason to fuss and complain and be upset. Yet he spent so little time dealing with this stuff, he spent almost all of his time out of love for the church. Please, I love you too much to see you suffer without peace. Would you listen to what I'm saying, he would write to the Galatians. You've been bewitched. He didn't go to them as unbelieving pagans that needed to be railroaded out of town. They were the elect of God, born of the Spirit. And they were being troubled. He tells Timothy about the same types of people. Because nothing changes. It's the same thing. It's the history of the church. It's the history of the world. It's the history of humanity. This is what we're all about. Cain will always be in the church. And all of us, remember, can be like Cain. Christ is our able. <laughs> But Paul knew 
that there were many things that could undermine his joy and progress in the ministry, but fear sometimes is the Scripture itself. Sometimes we fear because we know what the Scripture teaches and our flesh wants to hold on to dear life, to the power that we've been given with our fear. Tell me that's not ego. That's the whole point of a maniacal person. And if my fear gets you to come to me and have intimacy, oh, it's power. But it's not of Christ. It's never, ever of Christ. People who have affinity in fear are not of Christ in that fear. They are of the enemy. And they are the wreckers of the homes of God's people. Sometimes we know that Scripture is where we find our hope, yet we read it according to our own whims. Sometimes we know it is how God speaks in every, or to every circumstance, yet we seek out our own pretexts to fit our own path. We know that the Word of God is going to instruct us on peace and love and patience, yet we labor over our worldly philosophies. We know that the Word of God will devour our idols and destroy our affinities with so-called like-minded people who share our fears so we don't go there. And we avoid those who push us back to the cross of Christ and then to the instruction of Christ to His people. We avoid those who tell us what needs to be said. Because we know that the Word of God brings conviction unto life and we know that the Word of God brings conviction unto joy, yet we harbor resentment when other people try to share that truth with us as if they're being legalistic or busybodies. Paul was concerned not out of fear for the church, but out of love. And he looked toward the joy of unity, not in his own ideologies or wisdom, but according to the promises of Christ. And he did so because, as the Scripture would teach us in Romans chapter 4. Matter of fact, let's just read a few verses and close out of Romans 4 and 5. Romans chapter 4, verses 13. For the promise of God to Abraham, the word of God to Abraham, the command of God to Abraham, I just want to put it in perspective and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So I want to end with this so we can see that we're going to be insufficient in our submission to the Scripture. That is why we continue to obey the simple things like being together for the sake of the assembly that God in His promise will give us the instruction we need. We don't gauge our eternal life by how well we're living the Christian faith. We gauge our eternal life by the finished work of Christ. For it is the adherence of the law, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. It's not a promise of grace. It's something you earn. Okay, you did all the work. Here's your pay. Well, if you do all the obedience that's ever been commanded, you're still going to die. And you're still going to be under the wrath of God. For the law brings wrath. Why? Because we're all guilty before we ever sin of breaking it. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Saving faith is resting, sitting, not laboring. Resting. That the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you my father, a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom we believed, he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I should have probably just preached this text today. I literally did, but not reading it beforehand. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was almost 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. None of his unbelief in the promises of God made him waver concerning the promise of God. He continued to go back to the command and the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory for, to God. In what mindset? First, uh, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That means to seeing God for all that He is. Not only that, we, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Therefore, we listen to the commands of God with joy and they are not a burden so that we may learn that even in our suffering, we are joyful knowing that all that we are experiencing is for His sake and for His glory and for His purposes and ultimately unto our joy which comes from our hope in His work, not in our wisdom, not in our ability to fix things but in His promises. And His promises seem too simple and seem too passive, don't they? That's what irritates our flesh. This is too passive. We're not going to follow the Word of God because I want it done this way. I want to resolve things like this. I want to move this way. I want to have this. Beloved, we're weak and we're always going to be weak and we're still weak. And the good news is, is that for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by the blood of Christ, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we now have received reconciliation. Beloved, when we don't listen and obey the Word of God in reconciling with each other and even our enemies, we are spitting in the very reconciliation of the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. We mock it. So let us rest in His finished work and let us strive to enter in to reconciliation with one another in this world as long as it is up to us. Isn't that chapter 14, maybe 15? Of the same letter? And we can't make people change. But if we rest in the promises of God and someone else doesn't come into that promise, there's nothing else for us to do but pray. The blood of Christ has given us hope and peace and reconciled us to God the Father. And as we take the Lord's table today, I pray that you would prepare your hearts to joyfully receive these elements. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship and to hear your word. And Lord, how you would use a man like me to speak the truth of your word is all of grace. For I suffer, as you know, and as many of my friends here know, I suffer with great doubt and worry and burden to the detriment of my health. And Father, as long as I work on trying to overcome it myself, You continue to let me do it. But Father, when You show me Your Scripture and You show me the peace that comes through resting in what You have prescribed, Lord, it is only then that my joy is complete. And so I pray for us today. I pray for our church, for our spiritual family, that we would be united in the gospel and we would not be united in our problems or our discord, but we would be united in unity of faith. We would be united in the unity of grace and that we would grow and rejoice and we would praise You as you work these things out for your purposes. And Father, that we would pray for those who refuse it and not be bitter toward them and not be stressed out, but to continue to do that which we've been called to do for the sake of our own joy and for the praise of your name and your glory as you work these things through us. And as we take this table today, Lord, let us remember, as we are commanded to do, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ who has set us free from wrath that we justly deserve because Jesus Christ has satisfied it for us. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's come.